0: Welcome to the three martini lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three martinis coming up. Hey, really glad you're with us on this special edition of the Three Martini Lunch. If you've been with us the past few days, you know that uh, Jim and I are both on vacation. It's a rarity, but it happens every once in a while. And so we wanted to make sure that you had uh, fresh content. And one of the things that we decided we would do is to let you directly become a part of this special podcast. And it's gone so well in terms of the questions that you all have entered that we're going to do two episodes, as I believe we've already mentioned as well. And so today we're going to get to at least three, but probably more than that because we're being ambitious here and because your questions are that good. So we're going to go from the hypothetically awesome to the just absolute bizarre. So uh, thank you. Thank you for all of your submissions. They were fun to read and, and interesting to chew over. So, Jim, let's start with the Best possible political scenario we could ever see. This is from a Twitter user named Jim Clare. Don't know if Jim and Clare share an account or Clare is his last name, but either way, here's what he says. Let's say in 2024, the Republicans get a massive supermajority everywhere. Congress, 60 in the Senate, courts, etc. Which Republican president of the last 100 years will say from the Harding era till today... Would you pick to run this supermajority and why? And let's say he gets two terms. What would you expect to be
1: accomplished? Jim, take it away. Uh, the, first of all, Greg, our listeners offered some really great thought-provoking questions. And then they asked some joke ones, which we'll probably get to in the next one. Uh, <laughs> not all Some of you are being smug and snarky. And we saw that, but that's okay. We, we love you guys. Um, this was a real... I, I had to sit and think about this one because... The problem with a hypothetical like this is looking back at a past president and expecting are they taking office in the circumstances that they took office uh, or are they taking office presumably in 2024 in the modern political culture and environment that we have. Maybe a good example of this is. I think Dwight Eisenhower is an underrated president for uh, everything that was accomplished during that. People saw him as kind of boring and stodgy and, you know, Kennedy came along. But I think he could be a very effective president. But no doubt part of his uh, stature and the way he was seen in the American public's eyes was because of his leadership in World War II. And so the question is, if I were to say, oh, let's have Eisenhower... Take office in 2024. Is he taking office as a man who, in recent memory, had led the US to a most con- probably the most consequential victory in its history? Uh, or is it Dwight Eisenhower? And is he kind of updated to today's culture? Uh, or is he the Dwight? We're just literally taking a time machine, taking Dwight Eisenhower from then, bringing him to now. And expecting you know the great general and president to catch up to the modern culture. So these are every one of these you got to think about you know how would all the the dynamics of that work. I think the easiest decision for me is to think about the presidents who I have been alive for, which is obviously fewer than the past hundred years. Uh, and I think that it's almost a no-brainer: Ronald Reagan uh, for his sheer communication skills, for his sheer ability to. Uh, make ideas sound most common sense and clear effectiveness, the ability to connect with people. Uh, I think that would make him. You know, not only would he be able to get things through with a supermajority, he would be able to build supermajorities in public opinion for the change, kind of changes he wanted to make. Um, and so that would be my guess. It's probably predictable. If people want to say that I like Reagan too much, maybe a little too nostalgic. He was president from when I was about five to thirteen which are some pretty formulative years, and Greg, you and I have joked that um, when Reagan is the president when you're a kid, you just assume they're all going to be that good, and it doesn't necessarily shake out that way. The best example I can come up with with my ex- or demonstration of my excessive devotion to Reagan, a couple of months ago I was at the National Rifle Association convention down in Houston, I was away for a bunch of days, and apparently at the family dinner table in the Garrity House, they lamented that they missed me, which was nice to hear. And my older son, apparently deciding to you know, make everyone feel better in my absence, simply stood up at the dining room table and said, you know, this country would be better off if Reagan was in office. And let me tell you about how Reagan made sure the Iranians would release the hostages. And he just came up and he did this fascinating impression of me ranting and raving about how Ronald Reagan is the answer to all of life's problems. And if only we could bring it back, everything would be fixed. And uh, it was pretty funny. I have been cursed with an extraordinarily snarky and sarcastic teenage son who, uh, you know, who apparently listens to me and absorbs my lessons, but not necessarily in the way that I expect.
0: (laughs) Can't imagine how he got that kind of a streak as a teenager, Jim. I'm sure you weren't. Yeah, yeah.
1: I am cursed with all of my own uh, worst traits coming back at me.
0: Well, first of all, I think that's uh, an excellent window into your parenting, uh, that you're already uh, uh, got your kids talking like Reagan, uh, or maybe doing an impression of you talking about Reagan uh, when you're not even there. So that's that's good home training right there. Uh, obviously, Ronald Reagan, I believe, is the greatest president of my lifetime and probably the 20th century. Uh, and uh, his communication skills uh, are certainly a big part of it. People liked him, people wanted to like him, and he was good at articulating what was good, what was bad, and and what needed to be done. Uh, but I'm going to go a little bit differently here because things are so messed up at the government level now that you need someone who I just think doesn't really care about uh, how much uh, snarking they're going to get because I assume the left would still be controlling the media in this scenario uh, and that sort of thing. So it'd just be nonstop vilification. So you need someone who's not going to pay any attention to that, who's not going to lash back out because he just doesn't like to talk. And so Calvin Uh. Coolidge is my choice here because uh, he was able to shrink government, actually shrink government, uh, and he was able to uh, keep taxes low. When you think about the way the founders wanted our government to be, you just The first thing you got to do is just slash the size of government. Uh, go after those superfluous departments, which we added in the Carter years and at other times. Uh, get rid of uh, a lot of the bureaucracy and just get down to brass tacks about what this government's supposed to be about. And as you and I have talked about, Jim, getting back to the point where, for the most part, Americans don't even care what's going on in Washington because government's so small, they're just doing the blocking and tackling that the founders intended. So could we get back there even in that situation? I don't know. I hope so. I'd like to think we'd make a lot of progress. And so I would certainly like to find a place for Reagan in that situation. I think it's just better to have different ideas at this. And, and while I'd be perfectly fine with Reagan, I think if we don't go with him, I think Coolidge is the guy to roll up the sleeves and get it done.
1: Yeah, much like our end-of-the-year awards, it's always good to have a backup because we don't want to be <laughs> redundant with each other. Um, I, I realized I hadn't really explained what I'd like to see this you know, ideal, uh, reincarnated Reagan-style uh, figure to do. Um, Look, these are not necessarily the the sexiest or most popular or stylish things on the agenda, but I think entitlement reform is something I'd really like to see happen because at some point these interest payments on the debt and all of our payments we need to make for Social Security, Medicaid and Medicare uh, will just eat up more and more of the budget and make the government effectively dysfunctional that's you know, the clock is still ticking on that we just you know prefer not to think about it anymore or talk about it anymore uh yes i'd like to see civil service reform anyone who's read the weed agency would understand that i'd like to make it easier to fire bad government workers i don't want to bring back tammany hall and the spoil system but let's face it there are a lot of government workers who are just not up to snuff and who cannot get canned the way you can get dismissed in the private sector um, and then kind of the third item that comes to mind is, and I think this is a topic, maybe gets the most attention, but I don't think people really think through um, all the ramifications and details of it. I would like to see a US military that can go toe to toe with China, including all kinds of what I'd characterize as non-traditional combat. It's, uh, would I like to have a larger Navy? Absolutely. Would I like to have a larger and more advanced Air Force? Sure. But this comes into issues like cybersecurity. This gets into space-based weapons. This gets into the use of hypersonic weapons, hypersonic missile development, stealth drones, military applications of artificial intelligence. Yes, I realize this is getting into Skynet and Cyberdyne territory. Uh, quantum computing, which I expect to be more writing about that. That is a utterly terrifying argument. The idea that basically we could have no secure information anymore, that once the first, the first country to discover a quantum computer that really can do this could break any code and basically get into any computer system they want. Um, and then finally, for anyone who's read Hunting for Horsemen, Genetically Engineered Bioweapons, I don't know if China or necessarily a uh, a country will be pursuing this course of action, but I do think it's likely that some madman who has an idea of ethnic purity will at some point look at the applications of viruses just after we've experienced everything. all the... COVID-19's ability to bring the world to a screeching halt, uh, I do think somebody someday is gonna start experimenting with that and God God help us all if it gets too far down the road there. So those are the sorts of things that keep me up at night. I know they're not necessarily the topics that are make for the best attack ads or the most heated debates or something like that, but uh, that's what I'd like to see this ideal Republican president in Congress focus upon.
0: Yeah, focus on national security, get the fiscal house in order, which is a huge problem right now because we can't even have regular order on that kind of a stuff. And then just, uh, you know, focus on growing the economy and that sort of thing and keeping, you know, government out of these cultural mandates, whether it's our schools or all sorts of other things that have uh, that bogged down our government in areas. They, they don't belong in. So leave most stuff up to the saying, families and the locals and I, keep the feds out of it.
1: Yeah. As you say, people might be saying, well, Jim, what about social issues? It's not that I don't want a socially conservative president. I do think that a president's, jo- a president's job is to run the executive branch of the government. And that's not the same as running the culture. I remember when Ben Carson announced he was running for president back in the 2016 cycle. He said he was running to change American culture. And I'm not sure you do that from the Oval Office. Can a president exhibit a great deal of cultural influence? Yes, absolutely. But I don't think that's really, like, I think if you want to change the culture, maybe you got to go to work in Hollywood. Maybe you got to go to work in publishing. Maybe you got to go work in... The arts, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of things that make up the culture and I don't really think that's the primary job of the president. So that's kind of why that's not front and center in the issues I'd like to see this ideal candidate come, uh, focus upon.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I would want to, you know, a culturally conservative president. Uh, you'd want them uh, pro-life and so forth. But uh, I think the biggest thing they could do is just roll back a lot of this cultural intrusion, you know, like what Biden and, and Obama before him tried to do with uh, transgender bathroom issues and all that sort of thing. Just get the feds out of that entire entirely and and then let, uh, hopefully, culturally conservative people uh, make more sensible decisions down the road themselves and state and local levels and that sort of thing. And hopefully common sense will prevail because it's certainly not prevailing in Washington. All right, Jim, on to our next question now. And this one comes to us uh, from a listener named Christopher Athari. He issued three questions. Uh, So this is one of them that we're getting to. We'll see if uh, another one gets into the batch later. But he says, how much does Ron DeSantis need to win by to springboard into 2024, and does a theoretical Rubio win affect that number? Because Rubio's running for re-election to the Senate as well. He says if DeSantis wins 54-46, but Rubio gets 57, that looks bad for DeSantis. But if Rubio wins 51-49, 54 looks pretty good. So what does Ron DeSantis need to do, Jim?
1: This is some pretty solid analysis here by Christopher. Good job there. Um, it's easy to forget. DeSantis won by about, what, 50,000 votes last time? It was very tight last time. And people also forget that before then, Rick Scott, the two-term governor of Florida, won hard-fought, expensive races by about one percent each time. So while Florida, yeah, you know, we're starting to think of as a red state, in some cases maybe a deep red state. A lot of the governor's races have been really close, whether it's been a good year or a bad year for, for that. So I was going to say, I think five or six points is where people start saying, wow, okay, that's really a big impressive. On paper, winning by two points is a bigger margin than usual for Republicans. But I think to get people to you know notice, it had to be in the five to six range. Yeah, I think if Rubio is doing significantly better or worse, that will be an indicator. Uh, I think anything bigger than six or seven though, people say, okay, this is a guy who will lock up Florida. In the 2024 cycle, and maybe would have appeal to um, a lot of you know diverse and growing states and stuff like that. So I, I put six as the margin where you got to people to really sit up and take notice to say, "Wow, that's a win." And remember, that's just 5347 or something in that ballpark.
0: Yeah, I think that's very manageable. Obviously, he needs to do better than last time, because if you do any worse, you might not even get reelected. And that's probably a downer uh, when you're trying to uh, run a presidential campaign. And I think he will do that. The Democrats do not have a high-quality candidate. Charlie Crist is running again. He'll probably be the nominee. We'll find out here in a few days. Nikki Fried seems... uh, pretty crazy and so I don't even think Florida Democrats will go for that if they do uh, it's going to be DeSantis by a lot uh, I think you're pretty much right I think uh you know closer to 10 points would be ideal but uh, anything that's over early is definitely uh, good for Ron DeSantis. And one of the good things that Florida does is they put their early vote out there right away as soon as the polls close. So you're not waiting for, for ballots to, to trickle in and so forth. But um, I, I think you're probably right about that. I think as long as he wins solidly, he is going to be the person most talked about for the Republican nomination outside of Trump, who it looks more and more uh, likely is going to get in. But we'll see about that officially. So now, the Rubio factor, Rubio's running against Val Demings, most likely. We'll see who emerges from, from the primary and so forth. But uh, I would think the numbers will be pretty similar. I don't, there's not a lot of ticket splitting in politics these days. I expect the numbers to be pretty consistent. I think Rubio won re-election by about five points and. In uh, 2016, which was ahead of where Trump was there. Um, but um, I expect Rubio, and I can't imagine somebody's gonna be like, I really love Rubio, but man, Charlie Crist, I really miss him being governor from 15 years ago. So I don't think there's gonna be a huge disparity. But I think the base probably loves DeSantis a little bit more, so I would expect him uh, to get a slightly higher percentage, especially if he's running against Nikki Freed. But if Rubio does win by substantially more, I think Christopher's right. I think that does ding uh, DeSantis a little bit when he's um, pretty clearly not the most popular Republican in his own state. But again, I don't expect that to happen.
1: Yeah, if there's a big split and disparity between those two candidates statewide, running statewide, Whoever's behind is going to get a lot of hmm, suspicion. Now, if you're, if you're Rubio, it doesn't matter. He's going to be you know, reelected for another six-year term. But if you're right, I think if DeSantis is well behind, people are going to start saying, oh, maybe this guy isn't as, uh, as popular and as strong a candidate as we thought he was.
0: Yeah, I think he's going to be there, and I think he's going to be a strong contender uh, for the presidency. He's got a pretty strong record to go on. Uh, Jim, real quick addendum here in the second one, because I don't think this will uh, take long. Uh, This is a question from Vance Pilkington. What mainstream and or liberal sources do you and Jim consume? What points of theirs do you find most salient or reasonable, even if you have disagreements about the role of government and separation of powers, etc.? So, uh, Jim, real quick, uh, which ones do you like to look over?
1: Sure. Uh, before I write The Morning Jolt, I, I have subscriptions to The Washington Post, New York Times, and Wall Street Journal. Check all those. Uh, I read Axios. I read Politico. You um, I'm basically at, at minimum scanning all of these to get a sense of what they're talking about. Mimeo Random is another good site for giving you a sense of what is front and center in people's discussions. And some days I want to write about that. Some days I want to zig when everyone else is zagging. Um, you know, there were times when I, I loved, used to love the New Republic. I used to love, uh, you know, kind of the you know, ones that were kind of in that center right one. I don't really enjoy reading progressive publications anymore. And it's not I, generally I don't think the quality is good as they used to be. Um, the only thing I would also say is like, if I'm looking for like stuff that is outside of the regular conservative media diet. Um, every time I get a chance to read British newspapers, they're, they're just the level of writing there is so much it's just it's just more sophisticated more detailed it's better written newspapers over there particularly in the feature articles so uh you know that's that's my non-usual uh news diet
0: Yeah, I definitely look at all the major networks. And and honestly, you know, it's a cesspool if you dig into the comments. But Twitter is a great place to just follow the mainstream uh, news sites. You see what the breaking news is well ahead of cable news. And you get to see people reacting to that to some extent as well. Uh, So the main networks: CBS, ABC, NBC, uh, CNN, that sort of thing, just to see what they're talking about. Like you said, Washington Post, New York Times. I keep an eye out for the Daily Beast and the Huffington Post. Huffington Post is getting more off the rails than ever. And I usually don't agree with much over at the Daily Beast either uh and then uh, i follow you know smart people like jim who then will retweet or or comment on stuff and then you kind of see what other places that you don't necessarily follow are talking about and so i like places that w- are willing to call shots the same in both directions it doesn't happen a lot but if you see you know conservative site uh, and we'll do that certainly once in a while calling out conservatives for something stupid and if you point out liberals for, for, uh, you know, uh, pointing out liberals for doing stupid things. That tends to build my respect a little bit, and so you you look at them a little bit more closely. There's not a ton of that these days, but like Jim says, the main thing is you you follow these people just to see what they're talking about and then kind of see what the prevailing arguments are because it's, it's a pretty amazing how lockstep the verbiage is on some of these uh, key issues, particularly the cultural issues, but but even other ones as well. Like uh, all, all of a sudden, everybody you know, just a couple of weeks ago, deciding that inflation is you know not what everybody thought it was. So uh, it's, it's 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 interesting to watch all of that develop, and but you do need to keep your uh, your eyes open for what other people are saying because the last thing you want to do is be stuck in a bubble.
1: Yeah, you know, it is very important so that you can listen to people tell you that. Um uh, someone is the kind, brightest, smartest, kindest human being they've ever met, uh, much like the Manchurian candidate, we get that message over <laughs> and over again.
0: CPAC chairman Matt Schlapp explains why firing Nancy Pelosi and winning the midterms needs to be our white-hot focus, or 2024 might not even matter. I'm Bill Walton. In the latest edition of The Bill Walton Show, Matt and I also discuss how a small number of leftists are ruining our corporations and institutions and why conservative ideas are better because they work and they make us happy. Follow The Bill Walton Show at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, on to our final martini now, Jim. And you and I love uh, our pop culture references uh, with the three martini lunch. We do have a diehard question. I think we're going to save it for the next edition, which is coming up later in the week. So, Tevi. Stay tuned. We're coming to it. Uh, but the, the one, Tebby's a very faithful listener, and I love the fact that he's this, uh, you know, a deeply brilliant person on so many different issues. And yet almost all of his comments on the podcast are related to Die Hard. That's, that's always fun. But here is a question from Harris from Seattle. And Harris is a college student, Jim. Uh, and uh, first of all, thank you, Harris, and many of our other listeners for the kind comments about the podcast you sent as well. Uh, but here is his question, Jim. I think you'll appreciate this. If you had to go back Terminator style and change something to avoid some of the current madness, what do you do and how do you enlist your younger selves? So, Jim, this is uh, this is a, a deep question that could go in a lot of different areas. I'm, I'm sure I'd like to intervene in a couple of different places. But uh, uh, for those who don't know, uh, and since it's been almost 40 years, I, I don't think I'm spoiling anything. Uh, the Terminator uh, was a story of uh, where Arnold Schwarzenegger was this evil cyborg, at least the first one, where he came back to kill a woman because she was going to give birth to the uh, the rebel leader many, many years in the future. And so then there was a guy from the future who came back to try to stop. Arnold Schwarzenegger from Killing the Mother who was going to give birth to the future leader. And so uh, this is the idea of, uh, of Terminator style. So Jim, where do you go? What do you do? And how do you get young Jim Garrity to play ball?
1: Well, the first thing that's kind of fascinating is, I, 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 by the way, I think about this with like disturbing regularity. Like if I could go back in time, what would I want to change? Would I be tempted to do the back to the future, betting on sports games and becoming wealthy and, and all that kind of stuff? Would I abuse that power that I bet? And my first thought is, okay, so let's say you go back, even if I'm a kid in the 1980s or something like that, I assume, you know, this, this, he's describing you have to change the mind of young Jim Garrity, and I'd like to think that they, I would respect old me. I probably, I might not, I might be a little pain in the focus, but eventually I'd grab myself by the lapels and shake myself until I came around. First, of all, I was like, well, you got you to go to the FBI office and say there's this guy named Osama bin Laden and he's going to he's gonna try to blow up the World Trade Center. He's going to try to destroy it. He's going to crash two planes. Good news is you've got some time to stop it. It's going to happen on, on September 11th, 2001. Then, of course, there's a chance I think you're a maniac. But if you repeat enough things that you know are going to happen, you nail like five Super Bowl winners in a row. F- hopefully the FBI will take you seriously. But then I periodically think, well, if you do that, let's say they stop the plot. They arrest Mohammed Atta as he's getting to the airport or something like that do you end up in a changing history so that instead of doing the 9-11 attacks, we never attack Afghanistan. We never you know uh, raid and destroy the, the, the Taliban's rule over Afghanistan for 20 years. Uh, Bin Laden never leaves. And do they end up setting a nuke off a few years later or something like that? That domino effect, that sense of, if you change one part of history, do you end up with enough unforeseen consequences? So putting aside all of the, how could I say? Oh, also uh, just screaming to everybody, be very careful about the wuhan institute of virology <laughs> even though it's not proven wink wink that this is the cause of the COVID 19 pandemic that has killed you know at minimum something like six seven million people around the world and most people believe many many more people around the world those would be two really important things i'd like to change but assuming i can't do any of that stuff assuming it's simply the state of u.s politics if there is a way i could go back to the uh, let's say you know early two thousands or early Obama years. Go to Andrew Breitbart and have him see a doctor, and make sure that he does not die when he does, because I feel the changes in Breitbart at the direction of Steve Bannon, and what that site was, and who Breitbart was, and his role as a person who was indisputably as as hard nosed and pugnacious and fearless. And indisputably conservative as a leader as we had in in, in our lifetimes, and I, I didn't have a ton of time to hang around with him. I came on one of the National Review cruises, and I just you know had so much respect for what he could do, you know, for people who who were totally not interested in politics, but who also was focused on getting results and who didn't wasn't into it for the circus and wasn't into it for the sideshow. And if you look back, Breitbart, it's, I guess it was in twenty twelve or so had some interview about Donald Trump and he kind of dismissed Donald Trump as a, as a circus freak. He, he did not take Donald Trump seriously. And a big part of it was that when the Tea Party was, was rising up, Tea Party, Donald Trump was nowhere to be found. And so you know, where you were when the early fights were happening mattered to Andrew Breitbart. And I feel like if Andrew Breitbart was alive, Steve Bannon would not have turned, oh, the, taken over Breitbart.com. Breitbart.com would not have turned into a relentless pro-Trump uh, propaganda publication. I don't know if that would have prevented Donald Trump from winning the 2016 uh, election. I don't know exactly how those dominoes would have fallen. But I do think that Breitbart was an indisputably respected figure who would not be easily taken in, uh, who was, you know, unlike certain other conservative leaders I could mention, uh, who was focused on results and who was not uh, going to be easily swayed by poll numbers or something like that. Um, so that would be one change that I think would have a lot of good, positive consequences down the road. But then again, who knows?
0: Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of different ways to answer this. Obviously, any massive disaster or tragedy is one you would want to uh, get in front of. You mentioned nine eleven, of course. You know, tell people in Indonesia and Thailand and all that sort of thing to stay off the beach around Christmas of Uh, was that 2004, I think, when uh, when the tsunami came in, Uh, you know, mass shootings, that sort of thing. You'd want to run around telling people to 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 protect themselves better than that. There's so many different uh, things you could do on that front Uh, in terms of in my lifetime, because I'm going to cheat a little bit later on this question, Jim. I would uh, go back to uh, 1990 uh, when I believe it was William Brennan who was retiring from the Supreme Court. And uh, young teenage me, who no one would probably listen to anyway, would beat down the door and say, don't listen to John Sununu and Warren Rudman. Don't pick David Souter for this Supreme Court opening. There's lots of real conservatives. Don't pick someone because you don't know what they'll actually do. That was the first nomination after uh, the Bork debacle. And so I think Bush was running a little bit uh, skittish there. And he uh, he uh, did the wrong thing. But uh, what were you going to say? Oh,
1: my God. I just have this vision of you, Greg, running around like uh, Christopher Walken in the dead zone. <laughs> <laughs> screaming shaking suitor's hand getting a vision of the future and saying, we've got to stop this man he's going to do so much damage so. oh
0: my gosh there would have been so many better supreme court decisions if there had been a real conservative nominated there got to give bush credit for clarence thomas of course but uh he really missed an opportunity there um in terms of where we're at politically jim I would have to go back before I was born, I think. I would have to go back to Buffalo, New York in September of 1901 and tackle the guy who killed William McKinley. So that way McKinley could finish his term. Hopefully Theodore Roosevelt never becomes president. I know some of you conservatives like him. You shouldn't. He's a progressive. And then you got to make got to find a way to make sure that Woodrow Wilson never becomes president because that really got the ball rolling in a big government direction. And as uh, much as Calvin Coolidge tried to do, giving him another shout out here. Uh, it just kept going. And then after the Depression, FDR built it up and then eventually LBJ, and it just kept spiraling out of control. So if you can stop the the rise of progressivism in the cradle, you you save yourself a lot of damage over the following century.
1: That's a good point. I mean, how far can we go back? Can we kill? I mean, obviously, you have to kill baby Hitler. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Do you want to kill? You know, do you kill baby Lennon? Do you kill baby Marx? Certainly, you kill baby style. You know how many babies can we kill? Which is really not the theme of this podcast. We really don't get into this very much. And finally, I would also just add, uh, Greg, I think you are correct. Theodore Roosevelt gets a lot of love from conservatives, and I think it all—it's it, San Juan Hill and the style points. Yeah. we love his attitude. We love his look. We love that we—he we just acts like the kind of guy who could be a butt-kicking conservative but who actually was pretty progressive in a lot of his policies.
0: Well said, Jim. I think we answered those questions pretty well. Uh, And this is fun. We're going to do one more this week. And uh, I'm really enjoying this. So chances are, (laughs) when we head to uh, common vacations again, uh, this could happen again. So keep listening and keep letting us know what you think about stuff. So, Jim, uh, have a great day. See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Karumbas of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Uh, do subscribe to the podcast if you don't already. Tell your friends about us as well. Thanks for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please keep those coming. They're a big help to us. Get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play 3 Martini Lunch podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great day, and please join us again for the next 3 Martini Lunch. China is buying up huge amounts of American farmland, and much of it is curiously close to key U.S. nuclear sites. I'm Sarah Carter. On the latest Sarah Carter Show, I'll tell you what I found during my reporting in Montana about communist China's aggressive ambitions in the United States and how the world is still giving it a pass on COVID. I'll also share the latest heartbreaking story about how the people flooding our borders are being exploited by cartels and our own government. Join me, follow The Sarah Carter Show at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.